It's ad break time. I'm pleased to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast remains proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. And as usual, they are up to amazing things. Their latest game, 500-Year-Old Vampire, just finished a very successful campaign, but if you forgot to back it, you can now pre-order through BackerKit. The link is in the show notes. I also want to plug my own Patreon. Your support means a lot to me, both emotionally and financially. Patreon money is what makes it possible to keep improving my channel by upgrading the equipment, and I'm also hoping to increase the amount of videos I can publish over the course of the next year. If you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm super excited by this week's podcast guest. I've got Professor Aaron Trammell. He is Professor of Informatics at UC Irvine. He also has an affiliation with African American and Media Studies. How you doing, Aaron? Hey Liz, it's great to see you. Hey, it's great to see you too. You are now a repeat guest to the podcast. This is You came back for more. Yeah, uh, we, I was here with Paul Booth once upon a time talking about our book series, Tabletop Gaming. Uh, which is is in the works still. We have not forgotten about it. We have got an excited slate of authors queued up and about to publish their books. So those will really be rolling out in the next year or so. Fantastic. But I actually brought you on today to talk about your book, uh, The Privilege of Play. And uh, I thought it was a really, really good book. Uh, those of you who are out there, it was not too expensive on Kindle. Um, so I'm just saying, this is an accessible book. This is not like a hundred and something dollar Brill manuscript book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to work with a press that would make it somewhat affordable. Just don't get the hardcover version. Just do me a favor. This is not an endorsement for the hardcover version. That's that's specifically for libraries. Yes, uh, the academic book market, a special place. <laughs> uh, but The Privilege of Play was just a really fascinating project, but I'm going to let you describe it to all of us. So what was the premise of your book? And then I want to get into some details because I really enjoyed it and have lots of questions. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, so the privilege of play is the story of how hobby games and white communities over the course of the 20th century kind of fed off of each other. Um, so it goes all the way back to model trains at the turn of the century. Um, it goes through wargaming communities um, in the mid 20th century, all the way up to kind of board games today, looking at how these communities formed who was involved with these communities, and more importantly, who was not involved in these communities. Nice. That is a good, succinct overview. But your book covers a lot. So we start with model trains, which I actually really want to go back to you because it awakened core childhood memories for me. Um, <laughs> uh, Avalon Hill is in here. The Diplomacy Mail Game Network is in here. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons zines. And then even, um, you know, modern a modern look at board game geek and at you know the way that our community handled um the black lives matter protests back in like 2019 2020 um this is it was this book covers a lot of of ground in a way that i think was cool uh but actually i want to go back to model trains because as i read this book i think one of the things that i liked the most about it was that it really put some of how my own hobbies were formed into context for me um, you know, my grandfather graduated from West Point in 1959 and has an entire room in his house dedicated to model trains. And I used to think this was just like a quaint hobby that Pops had. But <laughs> reading your book gave me such a better sense of where it came from. And like, I think better insight into how it would have become so important for him. Um, and, you know, Pops is a gamer. 
my mother's name is Rhonda because pops didn't have a son and his name is Ronald. Um, <laughs> she's a gamer and now I'm a gamer. And I do think that these things like pass right through, you know, family interests too. So talk to, talk to us a bit about model trains as kind of setting the stage for hobby gaming, because I think a lot of us would never have thought of that. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing for me, the most important thing when thinking about history um, and thinking about um, the stuff I cover in the book is I want to focus on people and not objects. So like we have, there's many, many talented people in the community who have done great like breakdowns of like, here's how a game is problematic. Here's, um, here's what a game represents. Um, uh, and that stuff's really important. It's really interesting. But the book is really about the sort of people and the way people organize around the scene. So um, with uh, model trains, the, the, the key thing that is kind of similar is that the networks that um, enjoyed and participated in the, the model train community um, were not only the same networks that enjoyed and began the early wargaming kind of community, begat the kind of wargaming community, but um, they were they were networks that kind of had the same interest. They had the same organization. They had to seek out hobby shops to go do their work. Um, and I think for me, this, this connection had always been kind of intuitive um, because uh, I grew up and the Hobby Masters, which was the game store that I in the, the town Red Bank, where near where I grew up, um, it wasn't mainly a game store. Uh, they only brought in games because their son, I think, had a real interesting uh, hobby games. And so like he was like, bring the school Dungeons and Dragons stuff in. Let's get magic cards. Um, but but they had like the huge model train room upstairs with the trains going around all the time. And, you know, all of the gear they had in the store was like for model trains or model rockets or. Uh, you know, the, the little model cars that you'd build um, and paint and stuff like that. And so on this sort of like infrastructural level of how we get these games that we play um, and how we um, find the people that have other hobbies similar to ours, I think model trains have a lot in common uh, with board games today, with war games today, with role-playing games today, um, because these were the same people at one point uh, that had to do it. Um, so I, th I think the other similarity uh, to get your uh, question about where model trains really come into the story is that when you start looking at the model train hobby, it's just, it couldn't be mo more overt that this is very clearly a hobby that was for men. Um, it was a men's hobby. Um, and at that time, especially at the turn of the 20th century, um, men uh, in so many ways meant white men. Not exclusively. Um, my dad was telling me he had a friend who in the 50s or 60s was a model train hobbyist. Uh, he's a black man. But um, uh, but many of the people participating in this hobby were white men. And these networks really didn't seek to expand beyond that sort of core demographic moving forward. Interesting. And I mean, now we have the internet now, so things are different yet not different enough. But um, I feel like based on the history that you were putting together of how these clubs formed and communicated, what we're looking at is maybe university clubs, um, fanzines that are sent by you to people, you know, and then maybe some people that they know and, you know, hobby stores where maybe you never even know what's in the hobby store unless a friend takes you to the hobby store. Yeah. 
Yeah, those are the those, that would be the number one question I had to ask myself was as a historian was like, okay, it's 1930. I'm interested in model trains. How do I get my information about model trains? Where where who am I talking to to understand what that network is? And yeah, the answer there is magazines. Uh, there there was a bunch of magazines that there was a sort of like thriving ecosystem of magazines that people would go to back in the day to get that information. They could see in the back of these magazines other people who wanted to join in and talk about the Metacon. They could see in the back of the magazine the local hobby stores and where those hobby stores were. Um, and they could go there to understand more, learn more, and encounter more people who knew about the work that they were doing. And that's the same system we have today. I mean, we've got the internet. We've got things like Board Game Geek, which are really sophisticated forums. Um, and we've got podcasts and, you know, streams and stuff like that. But in general, it's the same system that we have today. It's just, it's a lot easier to get our hands on that information. Yes. Although perhaps still not easy enough, at least to me. Uh, but <laughs> one thing that really I thought was very interesting in the railroad chapter, and then there are similar graphics throughout your book, were the comics at the end of that chapter that sort of implied that all real men would rather be looking at model trains than doing stuff like propose to a woman um, or, you know, uh, get out of the way while your wife and your household staff are cleaning, um, you know, or the, like the one with the ambassador who like ditches the party so he can go in the basement and look at model trains. What, one thing that was very interesting was the idea, this is like the quintessential masculine hobby combined with the sense of i guess kind of uniqueness and secret clubbiness that also comes with the hobby so was yes. that like a trend that you saw throughout all of the manifestations of gaming that you were looking at i uh, yes and i i had really i had gone out of my way to try to to foreground places where i saw like women editing um or interview you know people of color um, who happened to be in the scene. These were really important things to me, uh, was to see if I could find that thread um, that I was hoping would be there behind the scenes. And it was, you know, there were people of color participating in the hobby. There were women editing um, fanzines. You mentioned the Dungeons and Dragons fanzines. I interviewed Lee Gold, who has the longest running Dungeons and Dragons fanzine of all time, it's still running today. It's one of the very first, she's still around, publishing it every month. Um, but at the same time, the degree to which these communities are still oriented around men and men's interests, um, and um, uh, also uh, men and men's interests, I think is, is astounding. Um, I, I don't know how far it's moved from that, um, at least with uh, some of the old school networks that we see. I think things, I think the needle's moving. That's kind of the, the conclusion of the book. But um, I, I think we had to wait about 100 years to get there. Yes. I also noticed, too, um, you know, we talk about these communities and their formation kind of alongside enclaves of white privilege in this country. Um, I thought it was very interesting, too, that I felt like some of the ads, you know, Avalon Hill talking about men of real intellect doing these like war things or like that kid who's like, I like to think of myself as the only 16 year old field marshal. There's a certain, I think, replacement of kind of physical masculinity with this kind of hobby geek outsider masculinity that I think might 
you know, and you're clearly pointing to this too, that, that affects how difficult it is to have this particular conversation. It, it, it is. And I, I want to say, I, just in case there's any uh, geeky guys out there who are, who are feeling this kind of hitting close to home right now. You know, I, I was one of these guys. It, you know, I grew up in a community. I wasn't a particularly thoughtful teenager. Um, and I definitely wasn't that thoughtful, uh, you know, up till probably I was around 25 or 30 years old. Um, and it comes from this sort of weird space of masculinity where you're at the one hand, uh, you're an outsider cause you're, you're not like a jock. You're not like, you know, uh, hanging out with the guys who are on the sports team all the time. Um, you're, you're at the lunch, the nerdy lunch table, um, talking about your Dungeons and Dragons games or your magic cards or whatever, um, with your friends. Um, so there's this sort of first sense of feeling sort of feminized um, in a sense in the, the masculine space. Um, but then within that, and this is, there's another academic T.L. Taylor who wrote extensively on this. There's a sort of hierarchy that begins to form there where in that nerd geeky space, there's ways that one still can demonstrate masculine prowess. And that isn't about like being able to slam dunk a basketball. It's about knowing all the rules, knowing how the rules work. Uh, knowing the conventions of the rules, that sort of knowledge, right? That geeky knowledge. Um, and so that, that idea of geek masculinity, I think is an important one to really be thoughtful of as we understand how the hobby kind of develops um, over the course of the 20th century, where these guys were, you know, people who probably weren't rock stars in their everyday life um, when they weren't playing games. But then you go kind of backstage and you see what they're doing in the hobby scene how they're moving and shaking with other people. And suddenly it's a whole new hierarchy around knowledge um, that, that these men are participating in. Um, that was probably, in, on the one hand, really, really liberating for them because they're existing in this you know, difficult world of other men who you know, have other interests and don't really like their interests. But on the other hand, it's kind of led to a sort of like um, turning inward from the rest of the world and isolating going down into the basement to play games um and uh and that that kind of um allowed these groups to um sequester themselves and reproduce their interests without m much diversity within them yeah and i think the other thing that makes that interesting is that because in a lot of ways these ways of expressing masculinity in a geeky context are kind of born of feelings of exclusion from other contexts I, I do think that they make it harder to talk about ways in which those those attitudes and those little enclaves are still privileged so what are your yes. experiences trying to I guess kind of interrogate those issues of diversity and inclusion with people who see themselves as the ones who are excluded and making their own separate kingdom because no one wanted them in football land <laughs> yeah i i mean um well first i mean the book is a history so uh the the work i did in the book is historical so i wasn't really um talking to people and asking them uh the sort of questions like you know how do you make sense of this i know paul booth does some of that in his book and i know uh tanya pabuda has also done some work around um that um 
that conversation around gender specifically and representation in games. And I'll even give a shout out to uh, sort of B-side here, um, Stephen Daschle, um, who's an up-and-coming um, academic who publishes a lot of our academic articles on this stuff, talks a lot about um, masculinity and gamer communities um, and race and gamer communities and a lot of really amazing, insightful things to say. So there's lots of people doing this sort of like interview people and see how they feel kind of work today. Um, my contribution is really historical. Um, but what I will say, I would say that the thing, just going into the communities I had spoken to um, and talked to, um, and looked at, um, the thing that, that struck me is that um, until very recently in these communities, people wouldn't jump to identify as a feminist, even if they were doing feminist work. Um, and I think that that's, I think that is connected to this whole thing. Um, because I think, you know, for a lot of people, the term feminist still has a lot of um, uh, problematic connotations that that even if they do agree with the word, they wouldn't want to see themselves in that way. Even if that is their practice as they move through the world, you know, they support women, um, uh, they believe in equal rights and stuff like that. The world, the word can carry so much baggage for some people that they just don't want to take it on them and say, this is my identity. They see it as core to themselves. They see it as an identity if they identify with that word. And, um, I think that that's something I still see in the community a lot today. Um, and I think it's something that I've seen historically in the community is that even though these conversations are, are going on and have been going on, uh, the communities that were taking them up um, historically were not communities that were looking to identify as activists in any sense of the word. That's interesting. Um, so, you know, as you moving on from model trains, kind of into this is, I found this chapter to be absolutely fascinating because I, I, you know, it's funny. I did not identify as a war gamer in 2018. I had a tweet about, I don't really see myself as a war gamer, but now in 2023, like I've completely evolved over <laughs> and, and now I do see myself as a, as a war gamer. And that means that things like Avalon Hill are part of my community history in a way that is, that was not true even like five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, now I get to grapple with it. Uh, talk, talk about some of the, the stuff that you were finding as you were looking through those old Avalon Hill general magazines and like your research, pro research process for that. Yeah. Um, so the Avalon Hill general, um, if you're not aware, is uh, Avalon Hill's flagship magazine. Um, they started it in the very early 60s and it still runs today, I think. Um, and... Um, yeah. Um, at first, it was kind of more of a fanzine. Like the editors were like kind of like kids, more or less teenagers, maybe like one or two older people involved. And it was just kind of like a fanzine model where they'd be like, let's try to get four or five people to write articles for this and we'll call them editors. And then every year we'll add a few more until they kind of changed models and, and started to, uh, to just publish more like a typical magazine would. Um, so the things that kind of gobsmacked me was just like, you know, whenever I do historical research, I, I get into the archive, I try to find the earliest stuff. I just, I, I wind up being a person who as a historian thinks chronologically, helps me put everything into place. Um, and so I started with issue one, um, and I started reading and the very first thing you encounter in issue one is this sort of like PN to the wonders of Avalon Hill. Um, and it's all these metaphors about like Avalon Hill and, uh, plantation living and uh, you know like 
sort of like high on a hill over the genteel landscape of South Baltimore, uh, where it used to be located. Um, and then, uh, you know, references to, to can, people who like to play the Confederate side in Gettysburg, slaughtering them damn Yankees. And like, as a black man, this is, this is like, you're just reading stuff. You're like, whoa, these are, these are people who are very nostalgic for plantation living, who see this is a very comfortable um, space and, uh, and are very happy to, to basically run this magazine um, in no uncertain terms saying like, this is, this is what our values are as a community. This is from 19, early 1960s. So like, this is almost like during civil rights, pre-civil rights, you know, as we're tracking other things. So I, you know, I, I try to be fair to stuff I write about and recognize like, you know, not everybody is what we would call woke today, understanding all these, how these social forces um, might be making a stressful living circumstance for like a potential reader or something like that. But uh, with Av the Avalon Hill General, um, this was overt. It, it was overt in a way that I think that a black man in the 60s or a black lady in the 60s would be like, whoa, this is not for me. <laughs> this is definitely not for me. Um, and then you just go in and you, there's just like these articles about like um, uh, Hitler specifically, um, like how he didn't start World War II. And there's this whole like um, game that they published of, um, called the origins of world war ii where they would crib from these like white supremacist texts to to justify um the sort of premise of this game which was like who really started it was it hitler could have been anyone <laughs> could have been any of these generals um this stuff that that um if you've done the research you know this actually comes from white supremacist groups and i don't know if the fans themselves were part of these groups who were made these games or made that game or if they just had happened upon this literature and thought it was interesting but it, it was white supremacist literature that was based on. And so, you know, games like that were, were kind of uh, frightening to see on the cover of the magazine to have exposés, you know, going diving deep into that literature and being like, actually, you know, it might not have been Hitler. Um, and then on another level, then they'd have these glamour shots of people like uh, uh, Robert E. Lee and uh, Adolf Hitler on like, again, so much Hitler on the cover of their magazines and um, uh, Rommel, who's, you know, the Nazi general, who's the equivalent of Robert E. Lee, the sort of epitome of the, the good general who fought for the wrong side. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in some ways, these magazines just really put all this on the cover of their magazine in the, the, the pages that followed. And it, it's kind of disturbing space to go back and read because you really see this magazine that wasn't at all concerned with what the reality of World War II or the Civil War was, but instead was kind of playing on the nostalgia that they could find in the consumer base who was eager to play Gettysburg, eager to play these World War II simulators, uh, not World War II, Civil War simulators, where they could imagine different pasts and perhaps different presents. Yes. And the thing that's also interesting to me, specifically about Avalon Hill, because I think it sets the pattern for the future of war games in general, is that, you know, wargaming is its own special part of the hobby, partially just because it is, you know, for, for people who like history, regardless of what side they fall on. But it's also, I think, sort of a self-styled intellectual's end of gaming. And so seeing very spurious, unfounded historical researches pop up in these magazines is very interesting because Avalon Hill places such 
a high value on intellect. And um, I want you to expand on this, on his ties with authorities in historical and war fields. Yeah, so this is where it gets interesting. So it wasn't just these high school kids writing for Avalon Hill. The, um, the people who own the magazine went out of their way to also solicit sort of endorsements from like top military brass at the time. So it wouldn't be uncommon in the pages of the Avalon Hill General to have like a top military strategist corresponding with a bunch of 16-year-olds or 13-year-olds who are playing these war games. And this was a back and forth dialogue um, there are instances where you could see the military strategists reflecting on like the dice tables that some of these kids made and being like, you know, actually, this was kind of brilliant and vice versa. You'd have these kids, you know, talking to these military strategists. And I imagine when they were no longer kids and looking for professional work, were able to le leverage these connections or at least skills that these men taught these boys um, to get jobs and to, to kind of succeed and thrive in their, their life ahead. And so it's, this is one of the things that's kind of happens, I think, in the hobby game space that's really unique to it and interesting is in this network, I call it a network of privilege, you have a lot of people training each other and helping each other with the tools that they would need to survive and thrive with their careers, which is actually a great thing. The problem is it was a very exclusively white male space. So it's not just any people it's just the people who had the grit, who could see through the Hitler cover of the Avalon Hill General and say, you know, this is the community for me, who are coming in to get those skills. Um, you, had to, you had to kind of grit your teeth um, and do that. And, you know, that's something that's still there in our industry and in the, the, the tabletop gaming community, I think, is that we have these um, strong ties to lots of people from lots of different places. And on some level, I think we all care for each other because we see each other as those lonely nerds that were in middle school uh, just trying to get by and make friends. And I think that's a tremendously good thing uh, for the community as long as we can diversify and make that a sort of more inclusive practice. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, talking about that kind of the mentorship, I think it's very interesting to be looking at these mentoring networks kind of under the guise of a silly hobby. Uh, that actually started as far back as the model train era that you wrote about in your book. So how do people balance between the fact they're actually doing really serious connections for life with the fact that like, oh, it's, it's just a hobby? Yeah, I think that that's something that we all know inside of us as participants in the hobby, right? I think we, we all know that there's something special about this and that we're not just doing it because it's fun. It's not just a dead end uh, use of our time or energy that, that we do it because there's exciting things happening. There's exciting ideas happening. There's exciting people that we get to talk to and meet. Um, and I think that's actually one of the things that we all know intuitively. It just, it just doesn't, it's not a straight line. It's not like you start playing board games and then you get a job at, <laughs> you know, like some venture capital firm or something like that, making millions of dollars. Um, it's, it's more zigzaggy and it's more like, well, you, you learn a bunch of things by interacting with interesting people and those things you learn become useful. And then sometimes those people help you move on in your career Sometimes those people help you think through um, your domestic situation a little better, uh, think through what a better home life might be. And so I think the knowledge just comes in all ways in sort of zigzaggy drips and drabs. And 
uh, we take it for granted because there's no like one person that you go to. It's not like you level up enough and then you get to meet the head of the, the head honcho of the hobby. And then they, they open the, the, the door to greatness for you. I think it just comes over time and participation, but I don't know. I, I, I grew up listening to a lot of like hardcore punk music. So I'm like, you know, it's like thinking local on some level. And I think that that's something that we do as the hobby really well. Uh, we just don't wear a bunch of patches and pins on our jackets. <laughs> I like that you said that it's not like the hobby just magically opens every door for you. That it doesn't, it's not like you level up enough and then suddenly the whole world just falls open. But it's still kind of um, an expression of privilege to be part of the hobby. And I, could you say some more about that? Because I think that that's sort of the heart of people who are like, well, I didn't experience any privilege. Nobody ever handed me anything. Yeah, yeah. So I think to, to think about that, we have to think sociologically for a second and talk about leisure and who has access to leisure. So a big thing that's happening with um, hobby games is that hobby games are not things that everybody just has time to go and play, to go and do. So it's only people who really have that sort of free time, that access to leisure, as I would put it, um, who can kind of jump in um, and enjoy or play a hobby game. So that's, that's the first part of the sort of story and equation is access to leisure is really important here. Um, but then the second part, and I think this is the, the really smart question that you're asking here, which is um, if you're somebody who does have that access to leisure and you're spending every week at a game store playing games um, or you're going to, you're on the con scene, you're going to cons every few months and you're meeting people, but it's not helping you in your career or anything like that. Um, I think uh, you may still have the question of um, where that uh, access might be in your life. And, you know, I, I, I would say it is, it is not the sort of thing that's such a straight line that I could say that everybody just automatically has it um, when they have it. Um, but I would say that if you looked in, if you looked at this from uh, a zoomed out perspective and you tried to think of um, what the numbers involved were like, how many people in the hobby um, were sort of thriving because they could um, jump into a sort of access situation and play games versus how many people in the hobby just, you know, weren't, um, were just kind of getting by. I think you'd see it from that zoomed out perspective um, that lots and lots more people were um, thriving because of the hobby than if they didn't have the hobby in their life. And I think that's the sort of, level that I would encourage you to look at. It's not an individual level. It's a sociological. It's that sort of grand scale, how many people are thriving because of the hobby. So this also leads me to ask, you know, we talked about this a little bit before I started recording, but we talk about the hobby, the hobby, the hobby, the hobby. What is the hobby? And why do we talk about it like this? It's a great question because I don't know. Why do we talk about it like this? Um, (laughs) Uh, yeah, this was a question I, I came across um, in writing the book was, why do we talk about the hobby as the? Why do we ascribe it this sort of uh, dignity where it's not a hobby? It's it's the hobby. Shh, the hobby. Um, it might be listening. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 I don't have a great answer to that question. Um, I, I speculate in the book that um, it is because it's, uh, we, we as a community see it as something special. Um, we see it as something that um, is more than a hobby, a, a hobby. I think that's an important thing there. I think there's also um, 
you start looking at hobby magazines and stuff like that, I think you start seeing um, this being a sort of gendered distinction. Um, I'm not sure if uh, the hobby is a way that, say, knitting is described in knitting magazines as much as hiking is described in a men's health magazine or a board game magazine. Um, but this, again, this I, I really don't know, but it does seem to be an important thing about the way we talk about who we are and what we do in the community. Is, is this the hobby or is it a hobby? You, you made a face when I said knitting, so maybe you... No, no, I'm actually, I'm looking it up. Like, I'm just wondering, like, I just did a Google of knitting just to see if I would see anything. Um, I'm not actually a new hobby, the perfect hobby, soothing, relaxing hobby, but I think we'd have to read deeper to yeah. get, to get that to find, discourse. We'd have, to, we'd have to find the forum or the, the, the streamer circle to... <laughs> to to really get the information on how people talk about it, but yeah, I for sure, I I definitely think um, I think this is perhaps related to men's interest because you know I again like when we're talking about like who values leisure time and why do they value leisure time, um, I think there's a drive within sort of like masculine spaces to not do things that are wasteful of time, and so having a hobby, you know, that's like a dalliance, but participating in the hobby okay well that might be important you know it's it's the one <laughs> <laughs> so i also just think this is so interesting because it connects in my mind to other kind of intellectual affectations of the the manifestations of the hobby that come up um in in privilege of play so the train hobby it's the hobby and it's for people who like electronics and you know even some of the books that you cited about it tried to kind of create a separation between people who wanted to paint the trains and people who wanted to do the wiring as if that was like a major difference in intellectual heft yeah. and validity um you know avalon hill built itself on the idea that it's an intellectually superior way to have fun yeah yeah yeah, yeah. diplomacy has similar vibes, right? There's something elite about being a really involved diplomacy player. Uh, it's like a true, real politic, like understanding of, you know, You're right, I can right, right. ruthlessly. <laughs> um, and then how does D&D kind of fit into that as well? Since that's well, one of the other things you talk about. I, I, I had my knee jerk, which is it's the world's greatest role-playing game. I mean, that's how it's, that's how it's branded is the singular role-playing game, which for folks in the indie game community is no small source of consternation when Dungeons and Dragons brands itself over and over again as the singular role-playing game, as if it would blot out the sun to all other uh, role-playing games. So I think that's a big way you see it with Dungeons and Dragons is that Dungeons and Dragons becomes the singular role-playing game that everyone plays. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I also felt though, okay, so first I, I do want to backtrack a bit. Did you find, I know there was at least one, but what examples did you find of women or people of color who were into Avalon Hill in yeah. your research? Yeah, so the best story I have about this was um, a man I interviewed named Nick Smith. Um, and I found him uh, chatting with people saying like, did you play this game with any black people? Um, and so eventually um, I, I got interested in Nick and I got to, to chat with him a little about his experiences playing Dungeons and Dragons back in the early days and, you know, how he experienced his race in the context of the community. Uh, he said he'd often gravitate to other tables of Dungeons and Dragons at cons with people of color. They were absolutely there in the 70s. Um, uh, not a majority, 
by any sense of the word, but, you know, showing up representing at cons. But the most interesting thing about Nick was he was a game designer for Avalon Hill. Um, and uh, he grew up in the Midwest. He grew up in a white suburb of the Midwest. And so he didn't have any affectations that one could, would consider urban to his speech. And so I asked him, you know, how Avalon Hill felt about working with a black man. And he said he didn't think that they knew because, <laughs> because when he would be talking to them, he just sounded like a white guy. Uh, what, what was that movie that came out like a year ago where the guy's like a, a, a call service thing and he starts talking like a white man? But um, I, I had flashes of that um, with, with Nick where he didn't think that they knew at all that he was black um, working with it. So that, that says something, right? Like that Avalon Hill may not have knowingly employed any black people um, to, to work on the games they produced. But then also from Nick's um, side of it, you know, he was just a nerd like anyone else in the community. He loved playing war games. And so he was really enthusiastic about playing them. Um, I was also speaking to um, uh, Henry uh, Lowood, who it is at Stanford. He's the, um, he runs the games archive there, but he grew up in a black area of LA. He's like the white kid in this sort of black area. This is again, anecdotal evidence, but, and this isn't in the book, but um, uh he said that he played a lot of war games growing up with the kids in his neighborhood, but he was always the one who brought them to the kids in his neighborhood, not the other way around. Um, and so, again, like, you know, how this all kind of adds together into a picture of race and gaming, I don't really know. Or, you know, I, I, I think we can only speculate, but um, I don't think it's like black people don't like war games or anything like that. I think a lot of black people who have been exposed really do enjoy them and want to participate in the communities more. I think the question is more, how do you get them? What areas did you have to walk to to find these things? Um, and so on and so forth um, to, to participate in the communities. And I think that kind of just led to a white monoculture. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to check in about that really quick is because, you know, the D&D chapter was very interesting just because, you know, you got to interview Lee Gold, who is a woman and a major zine publisher. Um, and it, you know, it was the most interesting chapter in the sense that conversations were really starting to happen about at least some aspects of representation like you said in in your own book right that like you you're so yourself said as the author right some of this is really cringy and then some of this seems like it's really progressive <laughs> and so do you feel like that's like the first part of your study where you started to see any sort of introspection and then why would it happen is it because of the period in time or is it because there's something about D and D? I I I think that it was because um there were more women playing D and D uh, than in some of the wargaming groups that were had come previously. Like with Avalon Hill, with the, the model trains, these were specifically men's interest. Um, uh, and with Dungeons & Dragons, I think that um, this is a game where ever so slightly you start to see more women participating in um, the gaming scene. And so this comes through... And, and also it, in Diplomacy, we saw it with um, uh, Penelope Naughton Dickens, who edited um, a, a magazine, I think, called The Pouch. Um, so it, it was happening a little in diplomacy before D&D, but um, mostly in D&D. I think that is where you start to see a little more participation um, from women in the scene. And I, I think that when you get different life experiences, different life perspectives, I happen to think that it leads to more interesting conversations um, and sort of pushback um, against some of these sort of um, male values 
that you would have seen earlier on. So I don't think it had anything to do with Dungeons and Dragons, um, except maybe insofar as Dungeons and Dragons was fantasy. And that is a very different genre than like historical fiction, uh, which uh, uh, was very much is very much men's interest. And so I think if anything, Dungeons and Dragons being a fantasy game was the thing that started to bring more women into that space um, to play. But then, yeah, then you'd get people like Lee Gold, um, who herself does not identify as a feminist, but was giving a lot of pushback against what she would call male chauvinist pigs in the community. <laughs> and so, so I, I, you know, like stuff, cool stuff like that was happening. Or, you know, Penelope Naughton Dickens, you know, um, was uh, kind of banning from, from her zines uh, people who were like using racial slurs or homophobic slurs at the time. So you always saw this like sort of with the women who are joining the scene. This is where that pushback to sort of like the locker room talk was definitely happening. And that's important. Like, I think that's a way that the, the whole scene as a whole has gotten to be more open, more progressive and more interesting. So would you say that a an increase in pushback against locker room talk is almost like a natural consequence, but not in a bad way, of like having a more inclusive community? Like because there are more women, there just is going to be more pushback because this like formerly insular place is now not insular and we have to account for more people there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just on the the level of you start to open the doors up, you have more people. If there's more people, more people feel comfortable speaking up um, when something gets said that they don't feel comfortable with. Um, you know, I used to work in the film industry and um, I remember one of the reasons I left the film industry was like, I was like riding with Teamsters around in New York City and they would just like want to talk to me about how they're cheating with their wives on Craigslist. And I was like, this is just not a group of people I want to work with on a regular basis um but you know like when you're in a car with this one guy who's just telling you this stuff just venting all this stuff it's like what are you gonna say uh let me out i'm walking home this is uncomfortable i i i didn't say that um i didn't feel comfortable saying that and i think it's the same in any scene right like when you don't have people who you feel comfortable around there's a lot of things you're not going to feel comfortable saying there's not a lot of things that you're going to feel comfortable speaking up for and stuff like that. And you could also say, I, I, I've done this sort of reading because bad things still did get said in Lee Gold's zine circle. And after those bad things got said, the participation of women as authors in um, uh, Alarms and Excursions, which is her zine, dropped for years. Um, and so... You know, no one was moderating that. No one was saying, giving a lot of pushback to that. And so people just tune out. They say, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to hang out with other people. I'm going to do something else because it's just not not my scene. Also, I feel like based on your own intro, um, that was your, you know, talking about your gaming life, you left the hobby for a while because of your inability to kind of square the circle of, I'm a geek and I f these are my people, but also I'm not being talked about as if I'm one of their people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I was also like uh, a teenager at the time, so I don't think I, I don't think I was that deliberate a decision. Um, uh, and also, as I, I, I was a teenager at a time, I was also uh, looking to date people, and I wasn't meeting women when I was <laughs> going to board game night in the, in the church basement or something like that. Um, so, um, so 
you know, I had, I had other motivations also that were kind of floating around, but I mean, in some ways that's, that's connected, right? Like it wasn't a diverse space of people where I could meet people that I wanted to socialize with at the time. And so I found other spaces to go into. And yeah, I never did feel like I was let into the sort of like inner circle when I was younger of the hobby. It might've been my age. Um, it might've been my race. Um, it might have been um, the fact that I didn't know the rules as well as everybody else, right? I didn't have that geek cred that so many people can flash in these con spaces. Uh, but for this reason or that, I just, you know, eventually turned away from it. So it wasn't for me until I got a little older. I lived in upstate New York for a bit and I felt very isolated up there. And I was like, okay, now it's time to find the friendly local game store and see if people <laughs> are still around to play games with. I think there's a lot in what you said, though, that it makes these conversations really hard, but also really necessary, which is it's like, well, you know, there were a lot of reasons why this might've been turning me off at the time. So I can't necessarily pinpoint one. I think that people like to pounce on that as like a C C like you can't prove that white privilege in this space or male privilege in this space is why. But I do think that if you look at patterns over time, based on what I see, in your book right maybe for an individual no but in terms of human patterns it looks more compelling yeah and i think that's the the i actually think what you're saying about proof is really interesting because i think as geeks right like this is one of the tools that we get taught um helps us you know get by is like what well, we're the rational crew we can prove things we use science um and so uh, there, there can be a sort of knee-jerk turning back onto that sort of comfortable space of like proof and looking for proof and looking for proof really closely. But I think um, there's different ways to do history. Um, there's uh, moment to moment. There's in terms of like um, uh, events and big things that happen, things that might be like a month or something like that. And then there's the sort of like, grand sense of history. Um, it's called long durée history, where you look at social patterns over time. And my work is actually kind of um, indebted to this school of history, where, yeah, I'm, I, I might not be able to prove what the exact event was, but that doesn't mean that a thing didn't happen or a thing isn't happening. And you have to zoom out to look at these patterns to say, like, okay, we can see here that, like, these uh, these communities were always white communities um, because they they happened in the turn of the century. These model railroad people were um, that was a very wealthy, privileged thing to have access to, and there just weren't lots of black people in those communities. And uh, the the advertising for these model trains wasn't for for women. Um, and these communities just over time didn't really change. They used the same resources. They used the same networks. You can look at them. You can watch the white flight happen when um, they move to the suburbs over time. And it's not a proof, but it's a historical pattern. And at the end of the day, every history isn't a proof. It's really just a story. Um, yeah. And so this is a story that helps explain something that we still see today. Yeah. And I, I like that you push it away from the individual, because I think, especially in our current era, we like to see all of our situation as individual. I made my choices. I did what I needed to do. I personally am not a racist, whatever, it is, you know, we're all very much about us as individuals. And I think that takes our eye off the ball, right. Of what we're all doing communally that can be quite telling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also um, draws attention to 
problems that are harder to solve, it's, it, it's kind of problematic to purge people from a community or something like that because of their behavior. We, we want to do it with Nazis, of course, but you know, that is also a conversation around purity and that's, that's not good either. Um, is having saying like we need this community to be 100% pure. I think one of the great things about hobby games is you can be sitting at a table with someone who has the opposite political views as you and play a game with them and learn from them and disagree with them. I think that's exciting. Um, I think that's a, a that sort of like sense of radical conversation that you can enter into. I think that's exciting and good, provided that the community can also be inclusive and allow new people in and not offend them um, with uh, some beliefs that are a little outdated. So this kind of leads us to the the, la- the latter parts of your book, where you talk about board game geek and you know discussions that are happening within our modern hobby gaming community. I mean, I guess it's all modern if you take along in a few, but current within recent memory, we were all there. Um, <laughs> uh, how do you see the patterns of early in your book playing out, and then how do you see them changing? Yeah, um, so I, I like to, to, to use the terms um, new geeks and old guard here. So I think um, there's a new generation of geeks coming into the hobby. They're excited. Um, I should say we because I feel like I'm part of this generation. We're excited. We want to change things. Um, we want games to represent the people who play them. Um, uh, I think that's... Uh, I think that's the sort of new energy coming into the world, um, diversifying things in a way. And then I think there's the old guard. And these are people who came through this sort of lineage of the model trains um, and uh, are, you know, used to doing things in a certain way. This comes down to even like product model. So like the old guard there, they know how to sell their games. They have like handshake agreements with hobby stores and distributors uh, to go out there and get their games to the hobby stores across the world and across the country. Um, and this sort of new generation of geeks is coming in with Kickstarter often. This has been a big way that the community has changed. Um, they're, they're using different distribution models. Um, they're relying on crowds and different audiences to buy their games, not the same people who always bought the games. In some ways, they're reaching far bigger crowds because they're able to tap into this sort of energy they're diversifying things in a way that appeals to different people and the old guard has struggled to really keep up with them on that level especially as the hobby changes but here's the trick and i think this is a really important point i want to put on it is that there's something that's important that the old guard does that we're losing as time goes forward so one of the things that's happening as uh, sort of like kickstarter generation takes over and really puts out games um that are more focused on diverse interests is that companies are looking at that and they're saying like, okay, we need to make our games more standardized, appeal to more people. And so that means we need to make sure that we have diverse representation on our covers, for example. That's good. That's absolutely a good thing. Um, And I'm excited that that's happening. But what it does, it is leading to is some homogenization in the industry where the sort of wild and wacky games that you might have been able to find 20 years ago at a big con aren't being produced as much because some companies that are in this sort of new guard of publishing practices think that they're risky or don't think that they're going to have a big enough audience to buy them. 
And the one thing that was really cool that the old guard was able to do is they had a really autonomous space of publication and uh, creativity that was kind of all their own because they were publishing games for themselves and it wasn't about profits. It was about community. Um, and those games that they were publishing could take more risks um, and uh, could talk about things that we just, we don't see anymore in the games that get published. Now, do I want us to go back to the, like, do I want to laud the sort of racist games of the past? Absolutely not. But do I want that space of creativity to remain in the board game hobby? Um, yes, I don't want the hobby to become something like Assassin's Creed or Ubisoft's publishing model where you have one or two big publishing houses that just put out the same open world game again and again and again and again. And we see this already in digital gaming. And I think this is something that happens when money really starts getting involved. Is there's a tendency to homogenize what at one point was very artistic. And um, I think we can have our cake and eat it too, where we have games that aren't threatening and um, embrace diverse representation at the same time, allow people to publish crazy, wild, experimental things, not really thinking about, will this hit a quota or will this sell? Yeah, I think that's a good kind of thing to pivot to, just in the sense that, you know, we're talking about including people, um, but that does not mean that you don't also get to be an artist. Yes. There's yeah, a way exactly. to have it all. Exactly. And I think that we, we, we can have great art. Uh, we just need thoughtful people to make the great art. Um, and this is, so it's not a defense of thoughtless art. I, I think thoughtfulness has to be part of it. Um, but I, I do think that if we let the industry run away from itself, it's going to feel like a short-term victory and a long-term defeat because we're going to be back in the space of video games, which at the moment is also a very bro dude culture, um, where the sort of innovation just isn't happening on the way that it has been happening on the, the indie scene for years and years and years. And I, I, I would just... Every time I go to a con, if my favorite booth is Indie Press Revolution, I think all of the, the role-playing games that they put out that they curate as their selection are just so cool. Um, and I think that's where you really see this, this dialogue thriving is in the indie role-playing game scene. There's just amazing games that get put out all the time on like the, the craziest things. Um, uh, my friend Camden has a game called One Child's Heart, which is this amazing like reflection on his youth growing up in a difficult household and stuff like that. Just games that will like break your heart. Uh, there's a game that got lauded, won a ton of awards a year or so ago. Um, oh my God, what, what is this game called? Uh, oh, I can't remember it. Um, uh, something August. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a role-playing game um, where you're, you know, uh, your friend goes missing. Alice is missing, that's what it is. The game is Alice is missing. And it's a role-playing game where your friend goes missing and you can only talk to everybody else in the role-playing game with your, your phones, with text messages, like you're a teenager. And so like the drama of the game is like, not only is your friend missing, but you're texting with each other the whole time. You're not talking to each other. And it, the game is just scripted brilliantly. And at the end, there's this like crescendo that just like you play it and you're like, oh my God, this just happened. And I won't spoil it, but like check that game out. It's so good. Um, it's so, so, so good. That's awesome. So um, 
kind of in the wrap up, we'll do one more serious question and then fun questions. So I guess my serious question is if people, you know, have listened to this entire episode and they want to engage with this topic, uh, what is your big takeaway for people who are looking around at our hobby and thinking about how to make it a better place for everybody? What should we look for when we start looking to change? That's a great question. Um, so I, I think there's a stock answer that I have for, for this whenever I get asked this question, because it's a really hard question to answer. And, you know, I, for me, I think we have to look at the spaces where people are not. And when we see those people operating and working in the hobby, I think we need to um, support them however we can. So that means supporting black uh, designers. That means supporting all designers of color, because frankly, there's far fewer of us in the hobby um, than there are white designers. I think it also means supporting women who design. That's you know historically still a problem, not this, this historical problem, but it's still a contemporary problem in terms of who's able to sort of like make it in the hobby. Um, and so I think that very level of like support. Um, if I write a thing, you know, as an academic, I'm thinking about who I cite. Um, I you know, if I write a thing and I'm just citing two or three white people, I try to balance it out and think through some other people I might be able to cite that and show other perspectives on that dialogue. And I think we should do the same thing with the games that we consume. If you're just getting the same games by the same designers to your table week after week, I think that you're, you're not actually thinking with um, structural change or the community um, in mind. So I, I would say that's the sort of like boilerplate easy to do answer is just like try to to buy a game from someone um who's different than you and play it um and that's important um the other thing i think we should do as a community is not fight ourselves um at all <laughs> uh, i think it's important that the community recognize that we all come from different places and that's part of what makes this community great um and that you know, it's not a sort of like war. It, this shouldn't be a cultural war. Historically, it hasn't been. It, we're really in a new territory now where we start thinking of this as conflict. Um, it's, it's collage. Um, we're, we can't get away from our past. It's not like we're going to whitewash or get rid of that. That's part of the collage we're making now. And I think as we go to make art into the future, we should keep that sort of mindset in mind that it's not about eradicating something and putting something new into its place. It's about what is the big picture become when we get new voices involved and we get um, new kinds of art involved. And we remember some of the great things that brought us to the community to begin with about what made these games exciting. And so I think on that aesthetic level, that's really important is sort of like valuing um, community participation as a sense of collage. And yeah, I, I would say that's the, probably the most profound thing I can say. <laughs> I like on it. The topic. So um, what are you playing for fun right now? Oh, my God. Of course, I'm playing. Um, there's been so many digital games that came out. Um, so, of course, I played uh, Diablo, Zelda, and um, Final Fantasy VI, 16. So I it, completely contradicting everything I said about hobby games and like thinking local. I bought the big digital games to play them and to geek out over them. So I've been playing a lot of that for fun. Um, I, on a hobby game level, I played The Witcher this week, which was uh, oh. the new Witcher adventure game that came out this week. Um, that was a ton of fun. I got to play Heat. I really enjoyed playing Heat. Um, 
I think that game has been great. And I was playing Undaunted Stalingrad, but, and I enjoyed it a lot. I got really burnt out on it. And so our campaign is kind of stalled in the center of that. Um, um, so I think I, I would say those are the games that I've picked up recently that have been uh, kind of exciting. Excellent. And if people want to get in touch with you, where can you be found online? Yeah, so um, my my Twitter, I, I don't know if Twitter will be around tomorrow at this rate. It's, it's like evaporating <laughs> by the day. <laughs> but my Twitter handle is uh, at uh, Aaron Tram, T-R-A-M. Um, uh, you can also find me, I have a website called AaronTramel.com. On that site, I put a lot of my writing, not just my books. Um, you can read a lot more articles about Dungeons and Dragons than you probably ever expected to read. Um, and um, uh, you can also find me, you can just email me. It's my last name, uh, Tramel, T-R-A-M-M-E-L-L, at uci.edu. And if, if you have um, anything you want to chat with me about, that's usually the best way to actually get in touch with me. Um, I infamously keep push notifications off on my phone for peace of mind. So um, sometimes I'll get like a Twitter DM like a week late and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I missed this. Um, so, uh, so yeah, tremel at uci.edu. That's, that's my professional email. You can get me there. Fantastic. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed your book and it was fun to get to, to talk through some of it with you. Thank you so much for reading it. I, I feel like as an author, I'm just like, somebody read it. They, they, they read the whole thing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a delight <laughs> talking to you, Liz. Thank you for having me on your show, um, reading my work, and having such thoughtful questions to ask me. And, you know, being such a force for good in the tabletop gaming community. <laughs> uh, I try. <laughs> Uh, so for those of you who are out there, I can be found anywhere online as Beyond Solitaire. I've been just parking my username on every Twitter alternative that comes up. Just Beyond Solitaire. Anywhere that makes it, I will be there. Um, <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are out there, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions. And most of all, happy gaming.